The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. But what do we do with these forms of cyber espionage gathering activity that falls below the threshold of real use of force, below the threshold of a real course of intervention that is predominantly focused on the gathering passively of certain information through zeros and ones coming in and out of your computer networks and information communication technologies. Is that really an intrusion upon your sovereignty? I am Eugenia Lohtri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 21st, 2023. On June 16th, the U.S. State Department discovered unauthorized access to its Exchange Online email services and reported it to Microsoft. Almost a month later, on July 11, Microsoft disclosed the attack and attributed it to a China-based threat actor, which they call Storm 0558. The intrusion granted the hackers access to email accounts at the Commerce and State Departments, including Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, among other targets. Although no classified information was compromised, the cyber espionage campaign comes at a time of tension between the US and China. To discuss the significance of the latest cyber espionage campaign, I sat down with Asaf Leuven, Associate Professor of Law at Indiana University Moorer School of Law and a visiting professor at Columbia Law School. We talked about what different types of espionage campaigns tell us about tightening U.S.-China competition, how international law can address cyber espionage, and the options available for governments to respond to this type of incidents. It's the Lawfare Podcast for July 21st. Asaf Lubin on cyber espionage and international law. Asaf, our conversation today on cyber espionage is prompted by fairly recent news about the exploit of a Microsoft vulnerability that affected the email accounts of U.S. government officials, including at the Commerce and the State Departments. So I think it would be useful if you could maybe start by setting the scene, give us a sense of the timeline for this event, and what do we know about this espionage campaign so far? Absolutely. So... Last week, or a little over a week ago now, Charlie Bell, the executive vice president at Microsoft Security, revealed information about a major cyber incident targeting certain customers of Microsoft Public Cloud. Microsoft attributed the attack to a China-based threat actor codenamed Storm0558. This threat actor has been routinely involved in targeting government agencies in Western Europe and has focused its attacks on espionage, data theft, and credential access. Beginning on May 15, 2023, Storm0558 exploited a token validation issue 
in Microsoft's cloud security to impersonate legitimate users and then proceeded to forge tokens, which it used to access Outlook Web Access and Outlook.com. And from there, it targeted the email accounts of individuals in 25 organizations, including many government agencies. The email accounts, as you mentioned, of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and officials from the State Department were among those breached. And the National Security Advisor Jack Sullivan said that the United States had detected this breach of the federal government accounts, quote, fairly rapidly, and is now investigating the matter with the help of Microsoft, which has launched its investigation alongside the Department of Homeland Security and the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. I'll just end by saying that CISA, this agency, are not, is now saying that no confidential classified information was ever taken and that there is no evidence that hackers infiltrated networks beyond a few contained Microsoft Outlook email accounts for a period of roughly one month. But of course, that investigation is very much ongoing. So you mentioned that Microsoft attributed this intrusion to a China-based threat actor, right? And they're tracking it as Storm 0558. Um, We also know that the National Security Council has cautioned to wait until the FBI has finished this investigation. But a spokesperson for the NSC said that there is no reason to doubt Microsoft's previous attribution of the hack. So how can we be certain at this time of the attribution to China? Well, we we should start with the fact that the Chinese disagree, right? So the Chinese issued their own statements denying the allegations that they were were involved in cyber espionage and turned the tables back at the United States, calling the U.S., quote, the world's biggest hacking empire and a global cyber thief, uh, starting uh, what is just a back and forth of inappropriate slurs at each other. The Chinese also added that it is high time that the U.S. explained its own cyber activities and stopped spreading this information to deflect public attention. But putting aside these kinds of diplomatic back and forths, I think the the real issue this is pointing out is how difficult it is to attribute with a degree of veracity and certainty that any one actor is behind a particular cyber attack. And so the challenge there is that under international law, there is no legal obligation to release any of the evidence Uh, or the technical identification materials that has led a government agency, or in this case, a corporate actor collaborating in an investigation with a government agency of the materials on the basis of which they reached their conclusions. Multiple governments have now explicitly came out out and said that they don't see a legal obligation to do so under international law. So essentially, we have what are political attributions rather than well-defined technical legal ones. So in that environment, we need to trust the actors that we trust, that they have done their work and they've based themselves on credible intelligence to reach the conclusions that they have. I will note to you that traditionally, we tend to trust non-involved actors more than those with an interest. So one good example of that might be Citizen Lab, which is a quasi-academic institution in Canada, which has done a lot of work in attributing particular cyber incidents and spyware attacks and so on. But there's an ongoing debate about um, what might be the required evidentiary standard. So when can we affirmatively conclude that one entity has done it? especially taking into account the myriad ways by which hackers can spoof their way through networks, can masquerade their identity, can rely on anonymizing technologies to make it harder to identify them as the actor 
and easier to mistakenly identify someone else. And so for the time being, there's no reason to assume that Microsoft is wrong on this, um, but there equally is an, a need for a wait and see uh, until the, at least until the investigation is concluded. I will, I will note one last thing, which is there's all kinds of other tools or techniques by which attributions tend to reveal themselves. And perhaps the most important here is criminal indictments. So if there ever is a criminal indictment, now you have a court-based standard of evidentiary requirements, which might compel the Department of Justice to reveal a lot more than it has done in its political statements. And through that in the past, we might have been able to learn and kind of decipher what motivated the conclusion. But we also realized that a lot of these decisions are based on intelligence, securing sources and preventing the disclosure of such sources is one good reason why you might not want to share all you know about who did what when. So it is interesting to note that the intrusion was discovered around the time of Secretary Blinken's trip to Beijing, and there is already some heightened tensions between the US and China, and the Commerce Department is looking into expanding expert controls, uh, placing some sanctions. So some of this resonates. We, I think we all remember the spy balloon controversy earlier this year, uh, which prompted Secretary Blinken to delay a scheduled trip to China. So how related do you think these events are? And what do they tell us about the US-China relationship? Yeah, I think that one thing is clear. The two countries are locked in an intensifying economic and geopolitical competition. And U.S. and Chinese leaders, while stressing that they are not seeking confrontation, are also clearly preparing the scene for what might be a confrontation that is physical and armed later down the line. And so it's in the best interest of both countries to do everything they can to collect information, intelligence about the capacities, capabilities, motivations, and interests of the other party. And this is not new. This is not some recent developments. Since time immemorial, big actors, as they were engaging in this big rivalries on the international stage, um, relied on intelligence as one tool by which they ensured greater stability and certainty within an uncertain, evolving world. And so the only perhaps surprising thing is that so much of the Chinese activity is being revealed, is that is being discovered by the U.S. and then publicly used to lambast, go after the Chinese in this public fashion. In fact, you might recall that while Blinken was meeting his counterparts in China, uh, President Biden went live and said, in what some, some people have called a gaffe, that the reason why Xi Jinping got very upset in terms of when I shot that balloon down with uh, two box cars full of spy equipment in it was that he didn't know it was there in the first place. And then Biden followed up by saying that that's a great embarrassment for dictators when they didn't know what happened, calling Xi Jinping a dictator, which obviously started a, a political controversy. I think the Americans are very much aware of what they're doing, kind of highlighting uh, examples or cases of Chinese espionage in order to use that to both uh, develop some international consensus around the like-minded states. And we saw, by the way, international condemnations uh, by multiple actors, Canada, New Zealand, in the wake of this particular cyber incident. 
as well as kind of signaling to the Chinese, you, you can do this game, but we have our capacities too, and we will um, be r- right there alongside you as you're engaging in these acts of espionage. So another tricky issue with cyber espionage is that you could make the argument that this intrusion is not just limited to quote unquote traditional espionage, right? So how can we distinguish between what's espionage and what could be positioning? Right. So there are um, the move from traditional espionage, say using a balloon to cyber espionage and technological means of surveillance also invites particular techniques and strategies that the digital domain allows. In a 2018 Cyber Command report, the U.S. Cyber Command explained or provided more information about what it calls Defend Forward, which is the American engagement in foreign cyber activity. And they broke it down to three types of functions. They call them positioning, warning, and influence. And so the way that the the Department of Defense here in the United States identifies these terms, positioning is the act um, of a forward cyber posture that can be leveraged to persistently degrade the effectiveness of adversary capabilities and blunt their actions and operations before they reach U.S. networks. That is a direct quote from that report. And essentially, it means a constant presence in the networks of my adversary. And really, in a way, you need that first presence as the the scaffolding, if you will, of any future cyber activity, whether that is a warning-based activity, aka the gathering of intelligence about the adversary's actions, intentions, and capabilities, or an influence-type operation, that third function from the report, meaning uh, this abusing adversaries of the idea that they can operate with impunity in cyberspace by influencing, deleting, manipulating data, engaging in disinformation, all these other forms of wet work that go beyond passive information gathering. And so can we really distinguish between these three categories, between positioning, warning, and influence, taken into account that each of them might have different legal analyses as to their legality, legality and legitimacy? The answer is that it's really, really hard. Because each operation requires some degree of positioning, some degree of warning, and ultimately, if you want to, also the possibility of influence, determining whether at any given moment, knowing that a cyber adversary is on my networks, is going in direction one, two, or three, is not easy to find out. On occasion, you might want to keep him there so that you can engage in some some counterintelligence activity to kind of suss out what he's trying to achieve. But other times you just want to kick them out to not risk the possibility that what you think is just early positioning might reveal itself as a complex shutdown of one's networks or a kill switch on one's electrical grid or something like that. And and I'll end by saying that that has been one of the reasons for a security spiral concern from the perspective of international relations scholars who say so much of the uncertainty around the motivations of a hacker on one's networks could lead um, defenders to take more extreme or aggressive action out of fear that their intentions are more malicious than they really actually are. 
And so this worry about deterioration, destabilization that is manifested because of cyber uncertainty is certainly a common um, theme in cybersecurity scholarship. That's kind of a perfect lead to my next question, which deals uh, with what are the response options available, right? So when you're confronted with this type of campaign, let's call it an espionage campaign for now, what can you do, right? We've heard, according to the reporting in the Washington Post, a senior FBI official said that the government would seek to impose costs on the adversary. So what does that look like? Right. And so we can rely on past examples, because this is obviously not the first time that the Chinese have been engaged in cyber uh, espionage and cyber offensive activity against the United States, to see what previous responses have been to assume that we're likely to see the same menu of activity playing out now. So one response, one immediate response is defense. So increasing your defensive capacities. And in that regard, news from literally today show that Microsoft has opened up its um, cybersecurity tools to consumers for free, which before it's charged for money. So a particular cybersecurity firm called Volexity has revealed that one of the victims of this particular hack was a human rights organization that could not detect the activity because they were not paying for a premium software license that would provide them access to certain logs that could have identified the hacker's presence in their networks. So to deal with that, Microsoft offers to all its customers this particular software for free. This is one example of where we will see enhancement of defenses through the making it available, accessible, certain cybersecurity tools and solutions. Obviously, that defensive track can take the form of market-based action, like in this case, but it can be also legislative or regulatory. So regulatory agencies might step in and impose regulation, or might there might be investigations that would reveal the causes that led to this particular incident, and then we'll work to fix them. And in much um, the, the recent 2023 Biden cybersecurity national strategy is a response to a series of cyber attacks on critical infrastructure that had revealed the kind of regulatory loopholes in the existing American uh, regulatory environment. But that's obviously internal at home. What else can you do? Well, the next thing you can do is bring indictments. So two examples for that. One comes from 2020. The Department of Justice announced indictments against four members of the China's People Liberation Army's hacking group that was engaged in the breach of Aquifax systems. In 2021, the same Justice Department announced charges against four other Chinese nationals who prosecutors said were working with the Ministry of State Security in China in a hacking campaign that targeted dozens of computer systems, including companies, universities, and government entities. Of course, the problem with these kinds of indictments is that they stay indictments. <laughs> that is to say, no one gets convicted at the end because these Chinese hackers don't tend to travel into countries in which America benefits from some extradition treaty. And so the ability to get a hold of them, bring them to an American court, and then put them in prison is, is much uh, circumvented. But the public indictment by itself obviously sends a message. It sends a particular message, what Kristin Eisner had called in the past, micro-deterrence. That is to say, the fact that your face is associated with an FBI warning, you know, capture, wanted, would might send a, a message to you as a particular Chinese hacker to not be so comfortable uh, with this reality and you might be less um, 
excited about recruitment efforts the next time uh, China knocks on your door. But the other thing, this gets to the what are the economic measures that can be employed. The other big action that can be employed is sanctions. And sanctions can take all kinds of forms. We might treat them as countermeasures directly to the perceived violation of international law generated by the adversary. And so they need to be proportionate, they need to be measured, they need to be temporary. We we saw examples of sanctions employed in particular contexts in the U.S.-China relationships. So you might think about certain sanctions around trade with Huawei or around the big talk around TikTok as a national security threat and the ongoing attempts to regulate that or particular restrictions on the transfer, on the trade of computer chips to China for, again, for national security reasons, to delay and degrade the capacity of the Chinese to develop uh, cyber offensive capabilities uh, or surveillance cap- capacities through backdoors. Whether or not these are effective in a superpower to superpower uh, way is, is an open-ended question that requires our empirical analysis. We can note that uh, there are massive sanctions, economic sanctions imposed against Russia for its war in Ukraine now for over two years. That hasn't stopped the word and 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 the um, uh, Russian economy, while it's struggled at various points and continues to struggle in some aspects, is also resilient enough to continue to allow the Russians to continue their war efforts. And so sec- sanctions can only work as well as they do. And so long as you have other allies with which you engage in trade and, and, and activity, you might be able to insulate yourself from the effects of sanctions. But sanctions can also be targeted. So we're not only talking about targeting the economy through trade. We might target particular hackers or particular leaders. You cannot travel, um, travel bans. We're seizing your property when it's located abroad. Again, sending signals, trying to uh, convey a message. But the bottom line is that um, it's it's a cat and mouse game. Obviously, the Americans are doing the same on the Chinese territory. And a lot of the way we might think about espionage uh, accountability is through the lens of bilateral diplomacy or what I might call surveillance diplomacy or espionage diplomacy. Exchanges of spies has been one of good examples of that over the years. So there might be, you know, let's establish some rules of the work, uh, the road So if you think about Obama and President Xi going all the way back to 2016, 2015, they had tried to set sort of rules about the theft of intellectual property being a no-no. Those are the kind of things that we might imagine over time being generated. Some of them might be public, some of them might not be public. That is probably your safest bet on on what is happening behind the scene right now between uh, uh, Washington and Beijing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. 
So I find it interesting that you started that answer by talking about precedent and how the reaction has been in the past. Um, because if I look back, it seems to me that the reaction to cyber espionage campaigns that have affected US, the US government has kind of evolved. You know, we've seen kind of a shrug and move on. You got to hand it to them when the Chinese hack of the OPM was put, made public. Um, and then you have the other extreme, which is lawmakers basically calling solar winds an act of war. So what do you think that tells us about the evolving understanding of, of cyber espionage? I think that's such an astute question, really, because what it reveals to us is that when we compare different espionage operations, and I know we'll get into the international law analysis later, when we start thinking and comparing what sets operations apart, it's um, certain effects that they have or particularized types of harms that they produce that merits different kinds of reactions from the international community. And I would argue to you that those are tailored to the field of espionage as a field, meaning that they are be the beginnings of the regulation of spying per se, which is a very controversial topic that we might get to later. And so just to exemplify that, let's let's go back to solar winds. As, as you mentioned, solar winds produced a very different reaction than, say, the attack on the Office of Personnel Management. Why is that? It's because certain features, certain aspects of the uh, solar winds hack were particularly catastrophic. So um, just to, to our audience, in case they don't remember what this hack was, a suspected nation state, in this case Russia, was also identified by Microsoft as one that gained access to the network systems and data of thousands of SolarWinds customers. The breadth of the act is unprecedented, one of the largest, if not the largest, of its kind ever recorded. We call it a supply chain attack because more than 30,000 public and private organizations, including local, state, and federal agencies, all use this network management tool that was being provided by SolarWinds and the hack of SolarWind exposed the inner workings of the users uh, to significant access and data grabs, which were then allowed the hackers to grow exponentially from there to other hackers along the chain, producing the kind of supply chain effect. So in the wake of that incident, the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, called the attack a moment for reckoning and said, this is not espionage as usual, quote unquote. He said, this is not just an attack on specific targets, but on the trust and reliability of the world's critical infrastructure in order to advance one nation's intelligence agency. So the focus there was about the disproportionate effects of the attack on the indiscriminate nature of the targeting Similar statements were made by the former director of CISA, Chris Kerbs. And so all these people were highlighting something here is different. It's attacking the trust. Can we have a trust that the core underlying infrastructure of something as basic as a management, a network management solution that everyone is using? And so that made it different that the, the quote unquote more targeted attack in the OPM case. So with that, let's just look at what people are saying about this hack now. So what have been some of the reactions of people about this hack? Well, 
The UN, U.S. intelligence community assessed that China almost certainly is capable of launching cyber attacks that could disrupt critical infrastructure services within the United States, including against oil and gas pipelines and rail system. This was a general statement that was made by the State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller back in May. And then more recently, in the wake of the attack, senior CISA officials who remain nameless have said that the targeting was, quote, intentional, and it appears to have been very targeted. They also said it was a surgical campaign that was not seeking the breadth of access we have seen in other campaigns. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention maybe is uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, chairman, the Vir Virginia Democrat Chairman Mark Warner said that it's investigating this incident and that it's, quote, clear that the PRC is steadily improving its cyber collection capabilities directing against the U.S. and our allies. My reading of this is that this is not SolarWinds 2.0, that it is below SolarWinds. It is more targeted than SolarWinds. It is more what, again, I'll use Microsoft's president, Brad Smith's word, more espionage as usual rather than espionage as unusual. But I want to end by giving you a quote from one of our allies that is from New Zealand, so New Zealand, when it joined the international condemnation of the exploitation of the Microsoft ex Exchange platform by China, said this. It said that this is widespread and reckless sharing of the vulnerability once the Chinese have used it and exposed it in this way. And they then say it could lead and perhaps already led to other cyber expo actors' exploitation of it. And all these examples try to draw lines in the sand as we begin to identify what crosses a perceived threshold, making this not espionage as usual, and what might not. But the bottom line is that we know at this point too little to make any conclusive determinations. So I want to move us along and finally discuss some of the international law issues that come into play here. right? And I think it would be interesting to maybe analyze this scenario that is happening right now uh, through the lens of two related fields. One, the kind of emerging international law around cyber activities, and also whatever there is about espionage <laughs> law. So, so let's start with uh, the former. What would you say about uh, how does the emerging international law on the regulation of cyber activities address this issue? Yeah, so we have exactly that, this emerging field of law. And it's emerging in part because the core foundational text, something as basic as the UN Charter, was written in 1945 in the wake of very kinetic types of warfare, right? World War II. And so our understanding of basic international rules is very much rooted in the physical and the territorial. And now we have an environment that is all purely digital, where we can engage in remote activity that have real effects that might be physical or might be digital. And the question becomes, do the rules just extend themselves to apply here too? And so the first question one might ask is, where do we derive the answer to that question? And so the UN had started a process in the 2010s of a series of conferences um, led by a group of governmental experts, what we call the UNGGE, which sought to develop and advance responsible state behavior in cyberspace. And what they have landed on is a set of 11 voluntary, non-binding norms of responsible state behavior. 
And so these norms kind of set the scene for what we might identify as potential rules. One of those, and perhaps one of the most established, is yet, yes, the UN Charter now applies in cyberspace. But even saying something like that then opens up the question, how does it apply in cyberspace? And there's various interpretations one of which comes to us from this big document called Tallinn Manual, which was produced at the invitation of the government of Estonia, led by this one very smart, very experienced scholar, Michael Schmidt, which has sought to identify existing customary defined rules of international law applicable in cyberspace. But I will note that even that document, which has all these rules and then commentaries in particular application in different scenarios, as A, produced disagreement among the experts who wrote it on particular issues, and B, in a great article published by Yuval Shani and Dan Afroni in the American Journal of International Law called Bookshelf on the, a Bookcase on the Shelf, they say, listen, states don't agree with what Talin Manuel says, says on a lot of these things. And so part of the debate will be about these two rules, sovereignty and non-intervention. And the question will be, is cyber espionage activity violating the principle of sovereignty? That is your right to exclude others from your territory. Does it apply in these circumstances? And states disagree on whether or not even this is a rule that could be violated or merely a principle, an overarching norm that cannot be generating any international legal responsibility. So even on the baselines of things, there's still debates, even when we say that the UN Charter as a whole apply. And the same is also true for this other norm, the principle of non-intervention, which establishes that you cannot intervene in the domestic affairs of another state in ways that are coercive and against the inherent functions of that state, the domain reserve of that state. And again, the question becomes whether espionage in this form where you're gathering and sucking up all this information, is that the kind of intervention that is prohibited in these circumstances? Needless to say that even on that, you'll have some diverging opinions. The, 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 the bottom line is that we have these emerging cyber norms, but there is very much still disagreement around their specific application. And it probably will not surprise you that just as there was a Tallinn Manual 1.0 and a Tallinn Manual 2.0, we're now looking for a Tallinn Manual 3.0 to come up in a few years in which these experts will continue to debate these very questions. You got to love the way that us international lawyers just default to our competing interpretations. We do love them. Um, so, okay. So if emerging international law on cyber activities, you know, can not really give us an answer right now, what about the very easy to analyze espionage law? Great. So here's another field that is very much subject <laughs> to disagreement and uh, uh, different interpretations. So let's start with traditional espionage, okay? Spy balloons um, or spies in my territory. The conventional wisdom, the contemporary wisdom, is that espionage is not regulated per se under international law. That is to say, there is no treaty that explicitly prohibits spying as such, nor is there a treaty that explicitly permits spying as such. And therefore, to the extent that you want to regulate espionage, you might look to general international law to identify particular principles that might constrain particular forms of intelligence collection. And so the question then becomes... Okay, take a spy balloon. Does it violate territorial airspace? Well, I'll look at a Chicago Convention, which regulates 
civilian and commercial air travel, or I might look at sovereignty principles and standards, which might regulate particular rules around accessing into my territorial airspace. But I'll just give you an example on that too. That spy balloon that we've been talking about for a while now has traveled at 60,000 feet above. Okay, that is above the traditional 45,000 feet that we say, okay, that's the defined territorial airspace. But international lawyers disagree. What is the moment where territorial airspace stops and into an outer space begins? And if that spy balloon operated in that uh, uh, kind of weird gray line in between zone, we're once again subject to debate. And that exact debate also manifests itself in cyber because it is again, agreed upon by the conventional wisdom that if a spy enters my territory without my consent to engage in intelligence gathering activities, in the same way that if a law enforcement agent entered my territory without my consent to engage in investigative activities for law enforcement purposes, those would be violations of my sovereignty. Those would constitute extraterritorial enforcement activity that violates international law. But what do we do with these forms of cyber espionage gathering activity that falls below the threshold of real use of force, below the threshold of a real course of intervention that is predominantly focused on the gathering passively of certain information through zeros and ones coming in and out of your computer networks and information communication technologies? Is that really an intrusion upon your sovereignty? And countries disagree on this point too. For example, Canada has come out and said that cyber espionage is particularly excluded. It's an excluded category from the field of um, sovereignty in international law. It's in a way kind of an exception to the norm. Even countries who have suggested that certain kind of cyber remote activity might violate sovereignty have debated on the degree. Take France on the one hand that has said that any intrusion upon my networks constitutes a sovereignty violation to a Germany who has required some physical harm or um, degrading of systems in a way that generates effects beyond just passive collection. And so the application of traditional espionage law, as it conventionally is understood, to this particular set of circumstances generates what Craig Forsese from Canada has called the cyber headache of espionage law. And the reality is that we know very little to give you a definitive international legal answer on this question too. Okay. We have been talking about this incident as a cyber espionage campaign, but you have made the argument in some of your work uh, that there is a convergence between what we call peacetime low-intensity cyber operations and peacetime espionage operations. And that means that the two should be subjected to a single regulatory framework. So can you tell me a bit more about how you understand this convergence and whether that could inform a response to a situation like this one? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite topics. So Here's, here's the situation. Right now, all these countries are really worried about cyber offensive activity. And so they are motivated to generate these UN bodies that try to regulate responsible behavior in cyberspace. And particularly what motivates them is the worry that their cyber, cybersecurity incidents have a tendency to have cascading effects, disproportionate effects. You cannot control the malware once it's out of the bottle. And so we want to contain this kind of activity. At the same time, these same countries have done everything they could 
to not regulate espionage per se. They didn't want, don't want to touch it. It's a taboo word. In past attempts where the UN had suggested the idea that it might have certain intelligence capacities or that we might start thinking about international law as it governing intelligence capacities, there was a lot of backlash from states. The bottom line is espionage is a no-go for regulation. Uh, below the threshold, cyber offensive activity, the majority of cyber of- uh, offensive activity is what we want to contain and constrain. Here's the problem. There are two, the two are like communicating vessels in the sense that any regulation of one will have effects on the other because any below the threshold cyber activity, all these manipulations of data, deletions of data, uh, what we called before influence operations, all of them begin with that presence in your networks, begin with what we call before positioning. Now, the act of positioning is an act of entering into one's computer networks without their consent and being present there without any authorization to be there. That is very similar to a spy entering into one's territory without their consent. If we want to say that the former is prohibited under some rule, whatever the articulation of the rule would be, would have to be then picked up and applied to the spying traditional context too. And then you ha- you're stuck. You cannot regulate the former without also regulating the latter. It doesn't help that it's the same very agencies, intelligence agencies, who are doing both, right? Most cyber offensive activities in most states is being done in collaboration with, if not directly controlled by, intelligence agencies. It doesn't help that these operations also mimic each other in and out a lot of different ways. They're, they're all parts of the continuation of war through other means. Uh, they're, they're all trying to achieve the same kind of competitive goals for states. And so they're part of what some have called, uh, Professor Lebicki in particular, have called um, an information warfare campaign, where inf- intelligence is one, cyber is another. Within that broader IW campaign, the attempt to regulate one and not the other just doesn't make any sense to me. And so when I says we need to converge them and think about a regulatory system that applies to the whole, that's what I basically had in mind. So far, we've focused on espionage from an international law perspective. But there are scholars of other disciplines like intelligence studies, political science, international relations, or ethics, um, who've also been studying these questions. So what can these other disciplines say about the legitimacy of, of this operation? Yeah, one of the benefits of these scholars who are not international lawyers is they're not encumbered by the challenges of doctrine, that is legal doctrine. And they have the benefit of thinking about the practice of intelligence per se, right? Most international law's conventional wisdom is that there's nothing to say about espionage as such. And therefore, we rush to look at some general principles like sovereignty and non-intervention and diplomatic inviolability and human rights law to try and regulate the practice. But what if we actually look about in, into intelligence as intelligence and saw what are the emerging ethical and moral philosophy norms that govern the practice? So these scholars have done exactly that. I'll, I'll mention two books that I think are two of the best books that have attempted this particular process. One is by David Omond and Mark Pythian, both very famous, very notorious uh, professionals in the intelligence world who have written a book called Principled Spying, The Ethics of Secret Intelligence. 
The other is by Cecile Fabre uh, from Oxford. She wrote Spying Through a Glass Darkly, The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. And what both these books attempt to do is to try and identify overarching ethical norms, professional standards that are already employed by intelligence agencies to constrain the disproportionate or harmful effects of espionage because both these books and broader scholarship in this field understands that intelligence is an important function to play in public world order. And so the assumption isn't, like Kant once said, that espionage is inherently, quote, a diabolical act because it, by design, untethers the trust that is necessary to establish a perpetual peace among the nations. Far from it, while that is also a possibility, intelligence can also be a stabilizing force in public uh, world order. How? It can be a stabilizing force because information to the pinnacle elites ensures that they are more capable of making rational decisions and less likely to turn to nuclear annihilation in, in the fight against each other. When you think about the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, intelligence played a huge role in preventing that kind of world war. But another thing is that you are more likely to take on riskier treaties and agreements if you know that you can investigate and spy on your trading partner in the case of an abuse of the agreement, uh, if they breach, I know about it and I get out of the agreement. And so um, intelligence ensures better international cooperation in the world order. This duality about espionage, about its destabilizing and stabilizing effect, is what justifies an, an equities analysis, a balance of the equities taking into account principles of necessity, proportionality, effectiveness, and asking about each individual operation, was it launched for the right causes? Did it employ the legitimate means in the conduct of choosing targets and uh, identifying particular methods of collection? And that's essentially what both of these books that I mentioned do. And they do it, by the way, both of them, on a cyber espionage context. So for example, some of the principles that they have identified is that the targeted operation is always better than a non-targeted, a disproportionate operation. So as we think about the differences between solar winds and, and this particular hack, that kind of manifests itself. Another one is about the disproportionate effects that could have from a, the use of cyber tools, what we started talking about with the uncertainties around cyber technology and its ability to have cascading effects along the lines. And so... Any intelligence officer who wants to launch a particular operation needs to ask, are you doing it to achieve certain national security goals, to prevent a surprise attack, to collect necessary information to the advancement of the national security interest of your state? And then whether on a macro level for the entire campaign and on a micro level for each individual operation, whether they comply with these basic standards. I'll just end by saying that these are all ethical standards. But as the International Court of Justice noted in the Southwest Africa case, a court of law can take account of moral principles only insofar as these are given sufficient expression in legal form. And so the challenge has been to take these principles and translate them into legal form. And so far, there hasn't been a lawyer who has done that. And so this is the point where I'm shamelessly plugging my own scholarship uh, in a book I have coming out next year with Oxford University Press uh, called The International Law of Espionage, The World of Spycraft and the Law of Nations, that's exactly what I do. I try to imagine 
how we translate these ethical standards into per se regulation of espionage as a lex specialis specialized field of international law. Well, we'll have to have you back then to talk about the book. But before we we wrap up, you know, do you have maybe any any parting words, any final thoughts, uh, you know, I usually ask if there's anything I forgot to ask that you wish we had discussed here. I I'll, let me just end with this. I think that if you thought about the world 30 years ago, there there couldn't have been an imagined world where a PhD student would study the international law of espionage because so much of the practice was secret, so much of the activity was not subject to public analysis and the result was that we knew very little about what countries were doing, how countries were reacting and what norms of customary and treaty law could emerge from that. I think what we are now in the post Snowden era, in the post FOIA, post um WikiLeaks hacking of information, disclosure of information, release of information environment we are in now, secrets that once took years to be discovered now get discovered relatively quickly. I think that's one of the lessons of this particular China hack. And in this new environment, there is a real possibility to reimagine the international law on both cyber and non-cyber forms of espionage. And I think that's a very exciting world for those interested in this topic to live in and puts an emphasis on all of us an obligation on all of us to think more creatively on how the law in this space could continue to evolve. Um and that's what I'm excited to be talking about and thinking about. Asaf, thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com/lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jan Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Code Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sofia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.